Shalom, friends. I'll speak in English. I am privileged to speak with you again today and to be part of your family of faith. We, Jews for Jesus, have been with you in the past, and you were generous to us and financially supportive of our work among the Jewish people. I don't take that lightly, and I appreciate your belief in the gospel of Jesus going to all people, including the ancient people of the covenants. As I share with you this morning about a very problematic biblical passage and see what God has to say about Israel from this chapter we just read, Romans 11, perhaps this will clarify some theological sticking points and may give you cause to rejoice, or so I hope, that God is ever looking after us, ever challenging us, ever calling us to himself. I believe as a result of this sermon today that you will trust God all the more. And isn't that what my job is? Isn't that what faith is all about? That white slip, that white card you received this morning, I hope while I'm speaking you'll fill that out and turn it in in that offering box towards the back or hand it to me in morning tea. And we can continue to send you or begin sending you our newsletter. Thanks for that. To put this in context, this is the preamble, Paul the Apostle is teaching the Roman church in his letter to the Romans about God's sovereignty and about his choices so that the believers will be comforted when challenged by their own lack, their own insufficiency, their own sinfulness. In light of all that and the assurance that Paul wants for the Roman believers, the Apostle then turns his attention to the obvious question, what about the Jewish people? If God chooses believers and you have nothing to worry about, well, what about the Jewish people who were also chosen by God? Are they still in God's consideration? Does he notice them? And what about Jews who don't believe in anything at all? Are they still chosen? And what about an eternal plan for Jewish people? And for Israel, good questions. Paul deals with the problem of Israel from two standpoints. In chapter 9, he teaches the sovereignty of God, how God chose my people for himself back in the days of Abraham. And then in chapter 10, he deals with Israel's failure to respond to God's faithfulness and righteousness, ending with the announcement we heard at the beginning of the reading today, that they are a disobedient and obstinate people. Ouch. If this were so then, how does Paul resolve the obvious tension? Will Israel's disobedience win in the battle with God, or will God find a way to deal with the situation so as to safeguard his purpose? That's where chapter 11 comes in. Paul will answer these questions by looking into Israel's past, present, and future, which brings us into today's message in our world today in a clear and visible manner. The question, has God rejected his people? Well, Paul's the example today. And when I put this up on my Facebook yesterday, has, my topic today will be, has God finished with Israel? Half the people responded with, that'll be the shortest sermon ever. No. (laughs) 
Paul's answer is no, and he uses his own life as evidence of this. God is not done with the Jewish people because God saved Saul, made him Paul. If God were done with Jews, then Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, would be dismissed and he wouldn't be saved either. So in answer to the question, did God reject all the Jewish people, the apostolic quick answer is no. Then he uses Elijah and the example back in that day. He continues with the evidence from back when. This is in 1 Kings 19. Against the backdrop of serious whinging by the prophet Elijah, the Bible says there were 7,000 Jewish people who stayed faithful at the time of Elijah. In the same way, Paul says, God has preserved from within Israel a remnant of people who love Jesus. Now, some people get this mixed up, and they think the term remnant applies to the church. That is, the church of Jesus has replaced the Jewish people. But that's exactly not what the apostle is saying. The evidence of God not rejecting the Jewish people is Jewish people in the church. So the remnant is believing Jews, or what we might call Jews for Jesus or Messianic Jews, that the church believes, great, great, well and good, but that's not a fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham. See what I mean? You might be thinking of Psalm 94, Kilo Yitosh, the Lord our God will not abandon us. He will never his people forsake. Well, there's a remnant, verses 5 to 10. Then Paul asks, since Jewish people are mostly rejectors of Messiah Jesus, have they fallen too far? Did their rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus cause them to fail irreparably? He shouts, absolutely not. He quotes from two different passages, one Isaiah chapter 44, he says this, they don't know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. And then Psalm 69, I think it's the most quoted text in the Older Testament, may their table become for them a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap, may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. He says that the majority of Israel's rejection of her Messiah was predicted, and so it should not surprise us. You like parables? God uses parables to prevent hearing. And he uses the truth of Scripture to hide truth from those who are hardened against it or who have ears that won't hear. So that most Jewish people then, and dare I say today, continue in unbelief is actually a testimony of God to choose a remnant. You Gentiles now get in on it, verses 11 to 24. In verse 11 and following, Paul says that God's purposes for you Gentiles, and I speak to, I'm guessing that most of you are not Jewish. I, I can't be sure. Paul says that God's purposes for you Gentiles were helped along by most of Israel 
saying no to the gospel message. Without Israel knocking back Yeshua, Jesus, as our Messiah, you Gentiles would never have had a chance to hear and believe. You're welcome. Chosen by grace. He's already made a case for the choice of the remnant being made on the basis of grace and not by works. That was early on in Romans. And now he emphasizes that again in verses 5 and 6. And he makes sure that the Gentiles, who are not the remnant and yet brought near, understand that they are also in on this by grace. And he uses two images, one this lump of dough and the other wild olive branches. Verse 21 makes his point so clear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And in verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. You're in on this. Thank God by grace. So am I. Gentiles have a ministry. We read that. Uh, Paul says the Gentiles in the community of faith, nicknamed the church, have a role to play, and that's to make Israel jealous or envious. Listen, your new car won't make a Jewish person jealous. He already has two in his garage. Your money, your glamour are irrelevant to a person with more wealth. They know science. They lead the way in technology and movies. There is, however, one thing Gentile believers in Jesus have that would make the ordinary Jewish person jealous. Your faith. You have a relationship with the Almighty. You know the living God. And that, and that alone, is what I hope you share with Jewish mates and work colleagues. When you see them and they're in turmoil, offer to pray with or for them. Attend to their home when they've lost a loved one. Sit with them. Comfort them. Demonstrate the peace of God which passes all understanding. When you can, attend to their son's bar mitzvah or wedding. Let them see your calm and your patience. Let them know you know the God of peace. That's one way to make them jealous. He warns, don't be conceited, but fear. In verse 18, we read the Gentiles should not be arrogant toward the branches. I guess when you think about it, that would be a natural thing to do. You might think, ah, those Jews, they had their chance. They knocked back the Messiah. Now it's our turn. And in a way, you're right. But the attitude of arrogance will come back to bite us if we're not careful. One of my favorite and probably least favorite verse in the Bible is right here in Romans 11, verse 22. Behold, meaning don't miss it, the kindness and severity of God. The two poles of his hands, if you will, the two hands of God. Jewish people teach that the right side's the hand of mercy, left is the side of judgment. He's not a one-handed deity. He offers mercy in his first coming, judgment in his second coming, the warning, don't be conceited, 
but fear. Then it's Jewish fullness time again. Verse 25 to 32. What time is it? Jews en masse come to faith. The apostle says this hardening condition on the Jewish people is only temporary. That's good news for the Jews. We read this in verse 25. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there seems to be a time frame which ends for you people. Whatever fullness might mean, it's clear that whatever that is, that this fullness will trigger something else. That is the end of the time of the hardening. In other words, Jewish people will soften again to the gospel of grace and will receive Yeshua en masse. But Paul has already indicated that in the key passage from verse, verse 15, don't write in your pew Bible, but if you have your own or you take notes on you version, get this, get this deep. For if, verse 15, if there, meaning Jewish people, rejecting him be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance of Jesus be but life from the dead? Let me see if I can unpack this one. Paul says it was necessary for the Jewish people to say no to Yeshua so that Gentiles could have opportunity to experience eternal life. But then God will open our eyes, remove that smudge, that stupor from our blindness, and cause us to see him whom we had pierced, and we will accept him. That's not only a theory, that's a promise from heaven. And when that happens, Paul says... Buckle your seatbelt. The end is nigh. That's what the phrase resurrection from the dead implies, that very culmination of global history. Why Paul makes such a big deal about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Then the Redeemer comes to Zion. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 59. When Jewish people en masse receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, when Jews for Jesus are abundant throughout the world in cities and countryside alike, when every tribe and kindred and family and tongue includes Jewish people who've become believers in and followers of Jesus, buckle your seatbelt, the end is near. That's when the Redeemer will come. David, I don't know if you get this, but I get it all the time. People are asking me about signs of the times, the end times. Is it now uh, blood moons? And we had it at Y2K, and people filled up their bathtubs. How long would that water last? Earthquakes and famines and, oh, oh, Israel became a nation in 1948. So that's the sign of the last. Look. There's one sign that's clearer than any other sign in the Newer Testament. That sign is the sign of Jewish people saying yes to Jesus. And that, friends at Burwood, is exactly what's happening across the world today. Now get this. In the 19th century, over 200,000 Jewish people joined the church. In those days, you didn't just attend, you had to sign, register, you were baptized, you were logged in. Since 1967, another 200,000 and way more 
have been grafted back into the olive branch. To be fair, there are 13 to 16 million Jewish people worldwide. Seven million of those live in the state of Israel. So there's a lot of work to do. And we're doing that work. But a significant threshold of Jewish numbers has been reached. The question would be, is it enough? I'm not going to announce anything except that the sign is visible. At least reach for your seatbelt. Verse 26, who is this all Israel? All Israel will be saved. That's a sticky one. So who is all Israel? Some say that's the church. And although I appreciate that the church is certainly saved and will be saved, the text in front of us doesn't allow us to switch from Jews to something else without warrant. The apostle has been speaking for three solid chapters about Jewish people. And to be consistent, he's going to continue to do so. Thus, the church, God bless you people, is not in view. Nor is this all Jewish people throughout all history or even at the time of Messiah's return. That would mitigate against evangelism and would take away free choice, both of which are inconsistent with biblical history. Being Jewish has never been enough to save us. It's merely a calling and a dramatic one at that, but it's never been salvific. The key is again in the use of the word remnant. A remnant, like a remnant of carpet you might have at home, or we might have here at the church, is part of the original. That's still in place after the rest of the carpet has been dislodged and replaced. Let me try to use uh, an image that may not be accurate, but we'll use it here of Burwood Press. Let's say that this carpet here on the podium, up on the platform, sorry, is original. When was the church built? 1888, so a few years ago. And they found this majestic carpet and they built it and they said, and they wrote it in the first AGM, that the carpet here on the surface of the platform shall, shall ever be purple with some spots of diamonds with yellow. And they wrote that in the notes. And somebody in 1930 said, you know, blue is the heavenly color. We should move that purple out. We should get blue. And someone else said, oh, no, red is the color of the blood of the lamb, and we should have red. And so there was a vote and this and that. And they finally went along with blue because it was heavenly. And they all agreed, and they voted, and everybody was happy. Except for one fellow who used to be on the session who remembered that his daddy was there in 1888 and was part of the original charter, the original covenant, the original beginnings. And he said, remember, and he pulled out, he had a document, and there it was, the color shall ever be purple on the platform. So now what do we do? Because the whole place needed to be cleansed, needed to be changed. There'd been a flood, there'd been termites, there'd been troubles. So they had to get rid of, but they had the original charter. Now what do we do? So what they said, some clever Jewish lawyer um, up the back came up with an idea. I know, let's keep a remnant of that 
to fulfill our commitment to the original and then replace everything else with blue, new blue, everybody was happy, the new people, the old people, everybody was happy with that. When I think of this imagery of one meaning for the remnant, that's Jewish believers in Jesus. If God is faithful to Jews who are still part of the larger carpet, (laughs) if we who are the original folks can stay within the community of the carpet, the community of faith, the community of the church, and bring in the blue and whatever color next year's AGM brings us, then God is faithful to, and you are faithful to the original covenant. Does that make sense? In that way, God being faithful to the remnant, he's faithful to the original covenant by keeping Jews in the believing community And he's faithful to his promises, all the while consistent with his call to include others in the new carpet. When you read about the remnant in Isaiah 28, think of Jewish believers like me, like Jews for Jesus, like others in Israel or New York City, and know that God keeps his promises. Final doxology, verse 33 the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. When you see God's hand, can you do anything else but praise him? Doxology, that's that's what should come out of our being. He's the God of wonders, and he's called and kept Israel, even in our times of smudge our times of disobedience. He will call us again, and maybe now is that time. He's, he reserved 7,000 in the time of Elijah. There are at least 100,000 Jews today who believe in Jesus. How many more are yet unknown to me? You know, it's almost, it's, it's pretty regular. At least once a month, I speak in a church every Sunday, different ones. At least once a month, I'll meet someone who comes up to me and says, my dad's Jewish. And I believe in Jesus. It's like I keep discovering. It's so exciting for me. And they, well, then you'd be like a Jew for Jesus. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that, they would say. Wow. Uh, God calls. God keeps. God saves to the uttermost. All we can do is praise him. He's worthy of our praises. Let me end my talk this morning highlighting just for a moment, the work of Jews for Jesus in a couple places. Our team in New York City right now, you saw the cloud on the, because of the Canadian fires this week. They're working with artisans and secular Jewish folk, and the response from what I hear is terrific. Jewish people that are wanting to hear more from us about Yeshua, that's why we do what we do. We have teams in Berlin and Budapest, Moscow, Johannesburg, And in Israel, some seriously precarious locations, we have 54 full-time workers sharing Messiah one by one by one. So proud of these staff. They're all way younger than me. I love reading their reports. Here in Sydney, we conducted a major campaign outreach in Darlinghurst last month, and the numbers were staggering. Our staff was blown away. And we know that prayers by the saints across the globe, even here in Sydney, 
precipitated that. Thank God for the response. In the SBNR, spiritual but not religious Jewish community. I'm humbled to be a part of our outreaches, even in Sydney, where I've lived for 25 years. My wife, my three kids, two kids went back to the U.S. I've got six grandsons, four over there, two here. It's really great. God's been kind to me. Um, I've got something that'll help if you'd like to make an offertory today. This is a square. This is not a geometry lesson. This is a tap-and-go machine. This is a credit card machine. So if you want over in the Memorial Parish Hall, if you want to make a donation, you can use this. Or you want to buy some products. We have books and candles and puzzles. We've got all kinds of things over there. Our bookshop in Bondi is uh, back to it. And every week, this is mind-blowing. We, we've been open since 2004. And for the first few months, not so much. Not much activity. 2005, not so much. Middle of 2005, after our front window was smashed three times, Channel 9 covered us, Channel 7 covered it. After that, every week, since 2005, so that's 18 years, Every week, Jewish people who don't yet believe come into the shop, some to argue, some to ask questions, some to buy products. It's a joy for me. So thanks for keeping us in your prayers. They strengthen us, and don't miss this. They open the hearts of Jewish people to hear us. Thanks for being part of our teams. Every Jew who hears us owes you great thanks as well. David, thank you for letting me come. I appreciate you. I appreciate Burwood Presbyterian and all who stand with us. It keeps me going.